Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. I wonder if you've ever had a spot in your life where when you look back on it, you would go, man, like shame and regret kind of wells up, right? Like you guys have those spaces? Like we all kind of have some of those where if I think about it, it's like, man, there's this like guilt or shame kind of wells up. And realistically, we're, we're hair triggered not to think about it for very long, right? Like, oh yeah, I don't want to think about that. And I just jump right out of it, right? We've all had those kinds of experiences, uh, but we don't spend much time there. I want to tell you a story. There's this guy named John. And, and John felt called to be a pastor. He lived on the East Coast. Uh, he felt called to be a pastor. And so uh, he had no money, but really pressed into this calling to be a pastor. He felt like he had to go to seminary. And so he got in a car, drove all the way across the country to Portland, Oregon, where he went to seminary. When he graduated, he went and pastored a church in the Southwest. Now, this church was, was thriving. People were being discipled, coming to know Jesus. Uh, He was mentoring other pastors, and and it was a great thing. But about a decade in, something started to become amiss. Something was a little bit off, and we're not really sure, you know, like it it seems like something's not quite right. And by the time, see, the problem that that John had was, John was addicted to pornography. And so he was like looking at pornography with his church computer, and by 2005, it became really evident that this had consumed him, and he was fired, let, let go. And can you imagine what, like, just absolute, like, mess that makes? Like, if you just think about it, like, think about all of the various churches that have fallen apart because of some sort of moral failure at a, at a leadership level. You know, the, the, the pain of, of people who, uh, who trusted this guy. And who cared for this guy? The pain in the family, like to, to find out, like, and, and this is not like a private thing, right? Like pastors of churches, like when something happens, it's not just the church that knows. It's the city that knows. It's the denomination that knows. It's all of your friends. And now you have your friends and your family friends that are shunning you because of this big blow up. And I wonder if you've ever thought about what that means for faith going forward. Like when a failure happens, what does that mean for the faith of the person who had the failure? What does it mean for the pastor who was following Jesus and pressing into calling and now has to somehow pick up the pieces? For the family that has to do the same, what does it mean? You know, unimaginable pain. And the, the, the calling on his life made a mess. And what does it look like to follow Jesus after that? I wonder if you've ever been in a space or a situation where regret or guilt or shame paralyzed you from following Jesus. Have you ever been in a space where, where just thoughts from something that happened before have just, just paralyzed you? I know I'm called, but I just I can't move forward. Have you been in that place? I want to talk about that a little bit today. 
We've been in this series for Lent that we've called Exchange, and we're looking at Isaiah chapter 61, uh, and it's a picture, Isaiah 61 is a picture of this relationship of exchange that God invites us into. Now, I've said a couple of times, and I'll try to sum it up fairly quickly, Isaiah is a book in the Old Testament of prophecy. Isaiah was sent by God to prophesy to his people, Israel, that they had failed to live up to representing him well. And so because of this, his judgment was going to come. And so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is is Isaiah basically saying, here's why this judgment is going to come on you. And so they're going to be exiled out of their land. And then at chapter 40, see, the, the last word of God is never judgment, but hope. At chapter 40, things turn and Isaiah starts to prophesy that there will come a day when you all would come back to the land. You all will be restored. You won't be slaves any longer. And as we get closer to chapter 61, what actually happens is Isaiah starts to talk about this is the picture of what will look like when this happens, that a suffering servant will come. We talked about that the first week. The suffering servant will come, and on behalf of the people Israel, the suffering servant will do his work and stand in the stead of unrighteous people, even though he's righteous. And Isaiah's looking at it like, I don't know who this figure is, right? If you can think about this, like 700 years before Jesus. And he's going, there's going to be this suffering servant that's going to come. Of course, we're on the other side. We're going, well, clearly... That's Jesus, right? And we made that connection at the first week, that that it's Jesus who is the suffering servant who has uh, stood in the stead of God's people to win them back, to pay for their unrighteousness, and in exchange, give his righteousness, right? And so all of this idea of exchange is, is God giving us his righteousness for our unrighteousness. And he trades our brokenness for his wholeness, right? That's the whole idea behind exchange. And so this chapter 61 is all about uh, this invitation to exchange that has become possible because of Jesus. And so week one, we took this sort of broad 35,000 foot view of chapter, or of chapter 61. And then last week, we started to look at a more microscopic level, right? We did verses one through the first half of three. And what I said last week was that that God is going to give people freedom. He's going to free people, and that the result of God's freedom is joy. Remember that? We talked about that. Like That that the results of the freedom God wins for us is expressed joy. That there's something about being set free by Jesus that ought to result in joy. We talked about like dancing. We talked about laughter. We talked about just joy. Like we give more airtime in the church to guilt and shame and sorrow than we do to joy. And that ought to be reversed. And so as we look at the the next section of Isaiah, I want to show you how God turns mess and God turns brokenness into ministry. God turns brokenness into ministry. I'm calling this message, What a Mess I've Made. So would you pray with me? And then we're going to look at Scripture. So Lord, I do just acknowledge your presence in this room. And God, I pray that you would come in an even greater measure. We want you here. We want you here. God, I pray today that you would bring your freedom. I pray today that it would be a liberating experience for the people in this room. 
Lord, would you give me your words to speak that none of me would show in all of you, God. Would you put your words in my mouth? Holy Spirit, would you put power on this message? I pray, God, for, for, for gifts of faith to believe in the transformation that you can bring in our lives. Come now, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Isaiah chapter 61, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. My new big print Bible has a coffee stain in it already. Isaiah chapter 61, that's how I find it. It's like the one wrinkled page. Um, And we're going to begin at verse 3, the second half of verse 3. And here's what we read. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. And in their riches, you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. If you remember from last week, like I said, the freedom that Jesus brings to us results in great joy. And Isaiah continues this thought that out of this great joy that comes from the freedom that we've experienced, that we would be people that God sets up as a display for his glory. That there's something about the demonstrative joy that comes from our freedom that would be a signpost to who God is to the rest of the world. And I would just parenthetically ask, is that true of your life right now? Would people know that God is glorious by the joy that comes from your life? And if not, maybe we should evaluate the freedom that we've been given in Christ. But that, that's not where I want to go today. But it's worth considering. But, so at the end of verse 3, we get this picture of we are to be people, if we've been rescued by Jesus, who are signposts to the world. That people would look at us and go, man, that must be something of what God is like. Because look at the joy. And we're a culture in desperate need of joy, are we not? And so these joy-filled people are going to be a demonstrative picture of who God is and the glory that God has. And then right after this, in verse 4, he says, let's go back to the devastated places now. Look at this again, verse 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations, I want you to think about the significance of this for just a minute. Like, I think we're tempted to read this and go, oh, great, we get the land back and they're going to build the temple. It's going to be amazing. It's great, right? But think about the shame of this. Israel was called to take this land. God was going to give it as an inheritance to these people. And they finally get there, and the temple is there, and the presence of God is there, and we've made it, right? King David, we had King Solomon, right? We have all of these people. We've made it. And then God says, you're not living as a representative of me, so you're going to be overtaken. And so they've got this stuff, and God says, 
I'm going to send another nation who's going to overtake you. Now, if you know what that means, generally speaking in the Old Testament, if your nation wins, what it's saying is your gods are stronger than our gods. And so there's this great shame. God's saying, I'm not less than the other gods. This is judgment on you. You're gone. And all of the things that you had great pride in will be destroyed. And that's what happened. Think about the great shame of this moment. Like, think about the great shame that they've experienced in this space. Like, all of the things we thought we had, and we lost it. And it's great that God is going to free us, but why doesn't he just free us to a new place? Why do we have to go back there? Why not just set us free to live in a new land, and we can make a new start, a fresh start? It'll be amazing, right? Like, it's, it's a new creation. God's doing a new thing. And there's all this excitement, and we're going to have this great joy because we're so free. And God immediately says, now let's go back to the places of shame. Think about the weight of that. How much do they actually want to go back to the places of shame? How much do you want to go back to the place of shame? How much do you actually want to wade into those things that you're embarrassed of? Why won't God just let us be in this new place and be joyous in this new place? You know, these are things that we have tried hard to forget, most of us. We don't want to think about going back there. And as we understand this idea that the suffering servant that's going to bring these things is Jesus, which means that for all of us who have experienced freedom in Christ and the great joy that comes from that, the next step that God walks us into, it says, let's go back now. Let's go back to the place of pain. Let's go back to the place of embarrassment. Let's go back to the place of shame. And none of us want to do it, do we? None of us want to do it. We just went to this emotionally focused weekend. and just came back last night, nice and late. And I can't tell you how, I mean, I, I won't ask any of the people who were there, but like there's resistance to pressing into the places of shame. Don't we all have a resistance to that? Like, Jesus, why can't you just let us go on? Why can't you just let us be excited and be joyful? These are things we've been hoping to forget. Why can't you just let me be free? We were hoping that Jesus would detach us from our old life completely and just start us over. And it turns out, over time, we're still connected to our story, aren't we? Even after you come to know Jesus, isn't it true that there are consequences of actions that you've engaged in or lived through? There are consequences that come with you, aren't there? And Jesus says, we're going back. We're going to walk back into the shame. We're going to walk back into the, the painful places. We're going to walk back into these things. But here's the deal. Jesus doesn't walk you back in to go, I want you to feel bad. Do you know that's not the point? God didn't want to take Israel back because he wanted them to just remember how bad they are. He wanted to take them back so that he could heal the shame. The goal of God in Israel's redemption is the same as the goal of God in our life as well, is to walk us back to the shame together and go, I'm going to take care of this. Because it turns out you can't just walk on and pretend like it didn't happen, right? Have you ever tried? You tried to walk it out, right? And go, well, I gave my life to Jesus, but these thoughts just keep coming back. 
man, how come I still live this way even though I, I, I'm a new creation in Christ and yet there's these, this baggage that comes with me? I thought I was supposed to be able to let go of all of that. And Jesus says, no, 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 let me heal it. Let me heal it. Do you know Jesus wants to heal you now for the things that happened before? All of those things that boil just under the surface, right? We talked about this. How close are we to anger? How close are we to sadness? How, how close under the surface is it? How quickly do we cry for things? How quickly do we fly into a rage? Because it turns out the baggage that we brought isn't gone. But Jesus wants to take us back into the shame to heal it. That we might actually be able to become the people God has created us to be. Have you ever been around someone who like had a broken bone, maybe like a leg or an ankle that didn't heal right? Maybe some of you here, I don't know. You ever been around somebody like that? And they don't walk quite right, right? Like the rest of their life. Like nothing about walking is right. Forever their lives are messed up, right? Like my walking, so I compensate with all these other muscles and, you know, it just gets a little bit weird. But do you know, medically speaking, Doctors can go in and re-break the leg, set it correctly, so that your walking in the future will be normal. But there's pain in the re-breaking, right? And yet, it takes that pain that we might actually be able to be made whole so that we can walk normally. The same thing is true with Jesus. That Jesus wants to walk back into the shame, back into the pain, and pull the scab back and say, it didn't get healed the first time. Let me heal the wound that you might be able to walk forward as a whole person. Isn't that good news? Jesus doesn't want to rub your nose in the shame and all the bad things. Jesus wants to heal the pain of the bad things. And then you become someone who's stronger on the other end. After you, re-break, after you break the bone and it heals, it's actually like a stronger thing, right? I, mean, I don't know. You're medically inclined. Those of you who know, I've been told I'm not a doctor. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. (laughs) See, there's no way forward without actually healing the broken places. There's no way forward. It's, It's painful, but it's absolutely essential that you'll never become who God created you to be otherwise. So God takes Israel back to the broken places. In verses 5 and 6, here's what Isaiah says. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. You know, the Israelites knew what priests were, right? The Israelites knew what priests were. And priests were these guys, like all of Israel was supposed to demonstrate to the world around what God was like. That was like the calling of Israel. It's like to demonstrate to the world what God is like. But there were these select people in the nation of Israel whose job it was to be the midpoint between God and the people around. These people were the priests. They had two functions, two primary functions. There are others. Two primary functions. The first function that the priests were to to assume is that people would come with their sacrifice, their act of worship. They would bring it to the priest, and it was the priest's job to turn, take the worship, like kill the animal, right? Do the, the sacrifice and direct it to God. And so in one sense, the priest's job was to uh, represent God or represent the people before God and offer the worship of the people to God on their behalf. 
The second thing that the priests were supposed to do is turn and then operate as the God, God's presence in the world and represent God to the people. That was the function of the priests. So to extend grace, right? To extend forgiveness. It was the job. And so essentially, the priests became a mobile presence of God, the tangible, visible presence of God in the world. Okay? And so these are like the ideas. But in this verse, Isaiah prophesies something a little bit different. And I don't know if you caught it. He says that when the suffering servant completes his work, what will happen is everybody who's been set free, we all become priests. We all become priests. The priesthood actually gets bigger. It's not a select few people. It's actually all the people who have been set free and experienced the joy of God become priests. Which means if you are a follower of Jesus, you get this priestly role. It's, in fact, that's what 1 Peter says. You guys know Peter, my favorite guy, right? Jumps out, out of the boat, all that stuff. He's amazing. Here's what 1 Peter 2.9 says. Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what you're called to be, a priest. If you're a follower of Jesus, you stand in the gap between God and humanity who doesn't know him. That's your role. Some of you are like, what am I supposed to do with that? I'm glad you asked. What both of these guys are saying is that we who follow Jesus represent God to the people, and we represent the people to God. That functions two ways, right? It functions two ways. The first thing, and maybe the most foundational role, is that we sum up the praises of all creation and direct them to God. Right? We take the praises in, in our sphere of creation, like our little corner, right? My, I go to work, I go to school, I go to my family. And as you do that, you hear people sort of like, you see the grace of God moving, right? Have you seen that grace of God like show up in people's lives? Like somebody got an unexpected promotion and they're like, I don't know what to do with this. This is amazing. I love it. And everything in them wants to worship or praise someone or something, right? Have you seen this before? If you watch for it, you'll see it. Like when the grace of God comes on someone's life, the desired response is worship. They just don't know where to put it. I've watched this happen so many times, and so they end up thinking, you know, I mean, I work at Sheets, right? Thanks, thanks, Travis, Sheets, for my bonus. Like, well, I mean, he probably was part of it, but like, this is a blessing of God. And so one of the ways that we help sum up the praises of creation and direct them to God is that we might go, you know what just happened there is the grace of God came in your life. Isn't God amazing? We should thank him for that. So that's one way. But the, maybe the more primary way that we do this is as we go around our little sphere of the office, as we go around our little sphere of the classroom and the campus, as we you know, check in with our family, we see this stuff happen. And we carry this sort of imaginary bag of worship and we see the grace of God come on someone's life, and they don't know what to do with it. And we go, that's okay, I'll put it right here. And we're walking through the office, and we see the grace of God come on this person's life, and we're like, man, that's amazing. Praise God. Isn't that amazing? And we see it in the family, and we put it. And, and after a little while, in the, as we go through our week, we have like bags of worship. And we show up here as priests of the living God, and we open the bag. We say, God, I saw you do this. 
I saw you do this. Praise you, Jesus. I can't believe you're so good. That's what we do. Like the whole first 25 minutes to 30 minutes to, I don't know, somebody was timing, said it was 40 minutes one time, of worship that we do here. Do you know that's what we're doing? Is that we're unpacking the bags of worship that the world doesn't know where to direct. And we say, God, this is all yours. You are worthy of praise. I've seen you move. I've seen your goodness in the world. And we direct praise heavenward. That's what we do. Do you know if you don't recognize that's what's happening, that's what's happening. There's a lot of nonsensical statements that we make if we don't understand that that's what's happening. We go, well, I didn't really like worship. And, you know, I, the band and the, they played the song that I don't like again. And, you know, I just really didn't like it. You know, and I couldn't really hear them. And, you know, the bass wasn't loud enough. And, you know, and I, all I could hear was Derek's voice. I couldn't hear anybody else's voice, right? All the things that we say. Do you realize how nonsensical those statements are in light of the fact that we are unpacking the bags of worship of our little corner of creation and offering them to Jesus? Do you realize how silly it sounds to say, I didn't like worship? Like, just think about that for a minute. Like, how crazy it, it sounds. Like, how much is God worth? Like, how much worship have you brought in with you to offer to God? Worship's too long. It's just too long. How crazy is that? I mean, when you really understand what we're doing, that we are summing up the praises of all creation and directing them to God. It could go on forever, right? Some of you are like, it feels like it does. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we're doing. And so the idea of whether or not you, or, you and I like it is an irrelevant thought. It's not for you. It's not for me. You don't worship loudly so that I can hear you and feel good about myself. But that's what happens. It, but that's not why we do it. Right? This is for him. It really doesn't have anything to do with us. And here's the deal. If you have not experienced the freedom that results in joy, worship feels like a job. It feels like a job. It's like, oh gosh, I can't believe we got to do this again. No, no, no. We have been set free, filled with joy that we get to do this. I mean, think about the, the, the creator of all things invites us to sum up the praises of all creation and direct them to him. Do you know what joy that ought to bring us? And if it's not a joy-filled experience for you, the question I would ask is, what freedom have you experienced? Have you actually allowed God to set you free? And if not, maybe it's time. Maybe today is the day that we get set free. That's what's happening on Sunday morning. But there's another thing that we get to do. The other foundational role we play as a follower of Jesus is that we represent God to the people. We represent God in the world. I say this all the time, right? At the end of every service, those of you who have heard me and paid any attention, we want to transform the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel, right? I say it all the time because it's a summary statement about what it is that we do. We actually are filled with the Spirit of God that we might show up in our workplaces, show up in our families, show up at the grocery store, show up everywhere we go, with the presence and power of God. Like we are in connection with the creator of all things. He dwells in us by the power of the spirit, which means there's never a normal work day for you. 
Do you know that? There's never a normal school day for you. Every day you show up, the, the power of God is present. I mean, just think about what that looks like. Everywhere you go, the presence and the power of God goes with you. Every moment can be a holy moment. Every moment contains infinite possibilities, right? You get to be the guy that brings the, the, the word of encouragement to the person who's really in despair. You get to be the lady who, who has like this word, this right now word of God to share with someone who doesn't know how they're going to make it through the day. You get to be the person who's going through the cashier's line and as she's talking about her marriage that's falling apart and you go, can I pray and invite the presence of God into your situation? See, I believe God wants to transform things. Can I pray for you? And of course they look at you funny, but you say, no, no I actually do believe the presence of God wants to change this. Can I pray for that? Do you know how powerful that is? Like, just think about it. Like, I, I think some of us, we go, yeah, I don't know. If I pray, I don't know if anything really happens. No, like, the presence of God, when you show up, and you say, come Holy Spirit, would you move in this situation? Do you know that God's presence will move in the situation? There's never a normal day for you. There's never a normal day for me. We walk in, you know, the, 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 um, the little snowman in, uh, in Frozen, right? Who, he gets his own little atmosphere. Olaf, thank you. Everybody knows. Great. It was a test. And everywhere he goes at the end, right, it's snowing, right? He gets his own little atmosphere. That's sort of what happens with us. We have this kingdom atmosphere that goes everywhere we go. And so everywhere we go, it just snows on people. If it snows in weird ways, you should get a different shampoo. But, but do you see that? Everywhere we show up, the atmosphere changes. This is the privilege of getting to be a person of the kingdom, a priest of the Lord. This is what we get to do. And this is where God's bringing redemption to your shame actually meets your new identity as a priest of God. Check out verse 7. It says, Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. See, the promise to Israel was not just that they would get their land back and that the buildings would get rebuilt, but the promise to Israel was that the place of their great shame would become a place of great healing for the nations. That's the double portion they're talking about. It would be good enough if they just got the land back and the buildings were rebuilt. It'd be good enough right there. That'd be great. It'd be amazing, right? But God says, no, not just that. That's one portion. I'm going to give you another portion. I'm going to take the place of great shame, and I'm going to bring the stranger, and I'm going to bring the foreigner along, and they are going to meet Jesus too. This is the great invitation to Israel is that, that God would use the place of Israel's shame to bring healing to the nations. See, the, per, the, the reason that Jesus takes you back to the place of shame in your life, the reason he walks you back through the pain uh, of the, the, like, the affair, or the reason he takes you back through the, the pain of the broken relationship, or the divorce, or the lost child, or all the things, the reason he takes you back into those spaces is not to rub your nose in it, 
but that he might heal it and then use it for the restoration and healing of the nations. Do you know the people around you need the healing that God's going to bring in you? Do you know that they need that? The people around you need what God is going to do in you. Whatever he's going to do through you, he first does in you, right? We've all lived in, in these places where we found ourselves thinking, man, this feels so traumatic. Why did God let this happen? Right? Have you lived in those places where you're like, I can't believe this happened and what, what was God doing? Turns out those questions are asked too soon. A lot of times when we feel those thoughts and we, we, we have those questions, they were asked too soon because God has not yet healed those spaces, but the intention is that he uses those spaces for healing for others. Let me bring this down with a, a, little, um, a little story. You know, one of the most painful things Jerry and I have ever gone through in our marriage was the loss of our second child, the middle child that we had. And I remember feeling like, I don't know why God would do this. I was mad. I was like, we prayed for this kid every day. Why did this happen? What's the point of this? What's the purpose of this? And it turns out that, that God had met other people in our small group in a miscarriage as well. And that he had healed the pain and that he had healed the shame and they were able to be a source of strength for us. And by God's grace, we have been able to be a source of strength for many people who have had the same experience. This is what God does. That he redeems your pain that you might be a source of strength for others. Maybe you had an affair and it was just a tragic thing and you're your marriage fell apart and you didn't know which end was up. And through restoration and, and, and repentance, like God began to heal you and your heart became healed. But he didn't just heal you so that your life experience would be better. He did do that. But he healed you so that you could walk through other people who are experiencing the same pain. Do you know that? God wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. Maybe you went through addiction, and I was addicted to drugs and alcohol and pornography. That's a lot, all at the same time. And God healed you, and through repentance and, and restoration, the pain and the shame went away. And that would be good enough if it was just that he was trying to make you whole for yourself, but he intends for you to be a source of strength for other people who are enduring the same things. Do you know that? There's not a pain in your life that he won't redeem for the sake of strength for others. Do you know that? That's the role you and I get to play. Every trauma, every wounding, every shame, every pain, Jesus redeems them so that they might be a source of strength and healing for others. It's one of my favorite verses. Romans 8.28 says this. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And have, who have been called according to his purpose. And how many things? Most of them? All things. Do you know God wastes nothing? The pain, the agony, the, the trauma that you're going through right now, the ways that you feel shame and regret and guilt right now, God intends to heal that you might be a source of strength for someone else. Do you know that? That's what God is doing. And if you'll allow him, God will turn your brokenness into kingdom ministry. Because it turns out, 
For the follower of Jesus, the opposite of brokenness is not healing. The opposite of brokenness is ministry. That God intends to use you to minister to someone else. And if you'll allow him, this will be the, the greatest impact ministry you could ever have in your life. I want to finish this story. I began with the story of John, who was a pastor who, who fell to pornography. And in 2005, he was removed, walked out of the building with his belongings. And in 2005, he arrived at Vineyard Columbus, the church that sent us. A broken man. A broken man. And he had nothing. And he showed up to try to heal. And one of the things he discovered is that turns out when Jesus is all you have, that's really all you need. And he began to walk out this process of healing, uh, and he brought other guys along with him. He said, would you go with me? This is who I am. I'm a broken man. But would you go with me as we walk towards healing? Guys started to walk with him and, and, and began to, to find healing and freedom. And over a period of time, God birthed something beautiful. Over a period of time, people began to find freedom as they walked with John towards wholeness. They began to find freedom, and lots of guys started to find freedom, and they created groups around it, and eventually it became this thing called 180 Recovery that has now impacted guys all around the world for healing. After he lost everything, God said, I can take that and I can work with it. And I believe that God can do the same kind of thing with you, regardless of what the shame is, regardless of what the trauma is, that God might use your pain and your trauma for someone else's healing. I believe that's what God wants to do. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.